Last month, I was hunting elk in the Rockies, and we were walking through single file. There were three of us along kind of a, a hillside. We were being quiet, and then I heard a twig snap somewhere to our, to our left. So I stopped the other two guys. I gave them the signal. It's our sign for twig snap. <laughs> and it's right over there. And so me and another one of the three guys that was also named Kevin, we start taking up position. And we're with John Wookie, who is a very selfless hunter and also an expert at calling elk. And so he just hangs back and we go get into position. He starts calling. Here comes an elk. Then another one, then another one. I'm standing there, I'm ready, I have my bow up, I have an arrow notch, the bow's in front of me, everything's ready, and here comes this elk. He stops about 10 yards from me, there's nothing in between us, he's right there, and he's like staring right at me. It's like he's looking right through me to see where that call is coming from, and he's right there. Have you ever had somebody tell a story and then right in the middle of the story, they just interrupt the story and then they start talking about something else? Or do you know somebody like that? Or you're watching a movie like it's an action movie and then something's gonna happen and right before it happens, the scene switches to something else that's going on at the same time? Do you know what I'm talking about? That's exactly what happens in the story of Joseph that we're looking at in Genesis. I mean, we've, we've, we've got the recap, right? We're in, we're in rough crowd. We're talking about Joseph and what happens to him. And right in the middle of that, we have this other story that gets shoved in there, one entire chapter, chapter 38, and it's all about another guy, one of Joseph's brothers. And, and it's not only that, if you'll remember the recap, and by the way, time out here. This chapter eight is kind of a sordid story. That's why mo most preachers just skip right on over this passage here. And so if you have kids, hide them because this is PG-13, get them out of the room because 38 is just one of those chapters. And if you remember what's going on is Joseph is one of 12 brothers. His other brothers hate him, just hate him. And then last week, Mike explained how they sold him into slavery. And so he goes off to Egypt. And so we're wondering, well, okay, well now what's gonna happen? I mean, he's the son, he's one of the 12 tribes. And now he's not even in Canaan, he's been taken off to Egypt. And not only that, as a slave, what's gonna happen to Joseph? What's, what's going to go, what's going on here? What's, what's gonna happen next? And then the scene shifts to Judah. Judah is the brother who it was his idea to sell Joseph as a slave. And we pick it up with him. Now, for some of you that you're just not going to be able to concentrate until I finish that other story. I'm there. The elk is standing there right in front of me. I'm ready. My, my, my arrow's notched and everything. And we, we, we can shoot a bull or we can shoot a cow. 
But these three elk are all spikes, young bulls that we cannot shoot. So I just had to stand there while this elk looked at me and thought, hey, aren't you the guy that up in Idaho just stared at another elk and didn't shoot it? And I'm like, yeah, and then it walked off. But anyway, that's the end of that story. So, but in this chapter 38, we're gonna discover why is this here? Why is this whole chapter about Judah here? And then two lessons that we can learn from it. So we're in Genesis chapter 38. First of all, why the interruption in the story of Joseph? Well, the reason for the interruption is because the story of Joseph is not primarily about Joseph. The story of Joseph is primarily about God's story of redemption for all of humanity that's recorded for us in Genesis. And that's why, if you'll remember two weeks ago, the story of Joseph started this way, Genesis 37.1. Now Jacob, not Joseph, now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pasturing in the flock with his brother while he was still a youth, and then the story opens up from there. The point is, this is actually a story of God's plan for the world. I mean, Genesis starts out, right, with creation, and God creates Adam and Eve, and people start multiplying, and, and they just, it gets messy, they're drifting from God, sin enters the world, all that stuff's happening. And then God calls one man named Abraham, and he tells Abraham, if you'll get up and go, I'm going to make you into the father of many nations. And one of those nations will usher in the salvation of the world. And out of that one nation, one family will carry the lineage of the Messiah. And so Abraham, we watch his story to see how this is gonna unfold because it's all through his bloodline. So how will it unfold? How's it gonna go? And then what we notice is Abraham, Abraham, Abram, who is then later named Abraham, doesn't have any kids. He and his wife, Sarah, no children for a long time. Finally, Sarah gets Abraham to sleep with her maidservant to provide an heir, and Ishmael is born, but God says, no, this is not the way we're gonna do this. And so God passes over Ishmael, the firstborn, although Muslim people would believe, no, that, that's where it was, all, it was all about Ishmael. And then in their very old age, God allowed Sarah to conceive and she gave birth to Isaac. And then Isaac was born and then he married Rebekah. And then he and Rebekah had two children, Esau and Jacob. And Esau was the eldest, but God chose Jacob. And this bloodline seems to be just hanging on a string. But then Jacob, who ends up with four wives, has 12 sons. And so, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now we see how a nation, a special nation will come from this man and his 12 sons represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So we see it happening. But then of the 12, who will carry on the line? Well, the logical choice would be Reuben, but we've talked about him. He's the oldest of the first wife, but he actually had sex with his mother-in-law, so that wasn't good, so he's disqualified. And then there was Joseph, but remember, Jacob thinks Joseph is dead, because that's what he's been told. 
by the rest of his sons. And so then we go to Simeon, second of the first wife, and Levi, third of the first wife. But they're the two guys that because they were traveling near a village and a, and a, a prominent young man in that village liked their sister and wanted to marry her, but ends up raping her, these two brothers go into the town and kill all the men in the city. And if you're wondering, well now how did that happen? How did they kill all the men in the city? Well, it actually tells us a logical explanation about how that happened, a little bit PG-13 as well. So you can go look at that if you want, but it all makes sense in Genesis 24 because they talked the men of the city into getting circumcised, they all did. And then when they couldn't fight back, the two brothers went in and killed them all. And so they're kind of out because Jacob says, hey, you betrayed us all because you could, get, you could have gotten us all killed by doing that. What if these other cities then came and attacked us? And so they're disqualified and the other sons, they're all conspired to kill their brother, but sold him instead. And so then we think, well, maybe Joseph would be the one. He seems the most innocent, although not perfect by any means. And although God enables Joseph to save the entire family as the story unfolds, God picks another son to continue the messianic line from Abraham to Messiah. And that's the fourth oldest son from the first wife. And his name is Judah. And he is who chapter 38 is about. So Joseph is sold into slavery. The slave traders are heading down to Egypt, and as they do that, there's this period of time, about 20 years, and then all of a sudden the narrative of Joseph stopped, and we have chapter 38 inserted about Judah, and this is the meanwhile back at the ranch part, all right? Joseph's going to Egypt, and this, we're going to start following that next week in chapter 39, but meanwhile back at the ranch in Canaan, this is what happens. And so that's why it's there, because it fits chronologically in this time frame, and it explains the lineage of the Messiah. Well, so the next, the next thing is, what lessons can we learn from this being here? And, and there are two lessons we can learn. First is God's people are prone to corruption. We actually see that all through Genesis. God's people, just like us, we are prone to corruption. Of Abraham's 12 great-grandsons, it's Judah that continues the line, but it's messy, really messy. And so chapter 38 starts this way in verse one. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. And so we see how God's people are prone to corruption. And here's how that starts. It starts when we distance ourselves from God's people, because that's what Judah does. He leaves his father and brother, not forced like Joseph was. Judah leaves willingly, intentionally. He chooses to leave the place where God's the center and he enters into this godless culture around him. And if you think about it, as the son of Jacob and the great-grandson 
of Abraham, nobody knows more about God than Judah. Nobody else around in the surrounding communities and the surrounding clans and the surrounding peoples know about God like Judah knows. And it's his job to pass this knowledge down to other people. That's the whole point of God's people. But he doesn't. He's actually attracted to Hira's lifestyle, the Canaanite culture. And so he goes and he hangs out with the rough crowd with Hira and he's checking out the Canaanite women. And actually, God has something to say about that, right? Even in the New Testament, we're told, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. It's what God wants us to know. But in this crowd, Judah married a Canaanite and he went into her. It continues in verse three. So she conceived and bore a son and they're trying to figure out a name and named him. They're trying to figure out the naming. Now that happened. It's like, what do you want to name him? Uh, er, okay, name him Ur. So that's what happened. Named him Ur. And then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. And she bore still another son and named him Sheila. Apparently they were hoping for a girl that time. And it was at Shezib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for her, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So wow, all of a sudden, we, things are kind of cooking now. It looked a little sketchy there with Abraham and sketchy with Isaac. But now Jacob's have 12 sons. And now here, one's got married, you know, he's married now. And so all of a sudden he has three sons. So things are kind of cooking. Things are sort of booming. Three sons, first oldest son is married. It's party time. But then this happens. Verse seven. But Ur... Judah's firstborn was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. So all of a sudden, no more Ur. I mean, we're, we're cooking right along, and then Ur is killed. We don't know what Ur did, but it was serious. God took his life. And before we get too judgmental on that, we all deserve for God to take our lives for our sin against him. But whatever Ur did, it must have been unusual because this normally doesn't happen this way. God's the righteous judge. He will not always tolerate sin. It continues in verse eight. Then Judah said to Onan, son number two, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And this is called... Leverite marriage. And this shows up in a couple other places in the Bible. And Leverite has nothing to do with the tribe of Levi. It's Leverite is from Levir, which is Latin for brother-in-law. And so this is a cultural custom. It also appears in the Bible where if a brother dies before he has any heirs, then his unmarried brother would then marry her, his widow, and produce an heir. And the first male child that's born of that union is not considered the son of the second son, but he's considered the son of his dead brother. In this case, the first son. Does that make sense? 
I don't know if I explained that very well, but anyway, that's, that's what it was. Now, both, either party could opt out of this, but if the woman wanted to do this and the brother didn't want to do it, it was considered shameful for that to happen. So the way this all goes is basically this is a custom that protected widows, so they have another option for marriage, but then also it continued a family name. And so Judah tells his second son, Onan, hey, you need to now marry your sister-in-law to provide an heir for Ur, who's gone. But Onan has other ideas. So he, he kind of, a little more worried about himself. Verse nine, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. So if you're wondering what this wasted his seed means, I've actually asked our resident, Joel, to come up here and explain that to you. No, no, I'll, no, wasted his seed, is wasted his seed means semen on the ground. So what's happening here is Onan, and we, we can tell by the Hebrew verb here that repeatedly has physical relations with Tamar, but he always makes sure that no baby is conceived because he doesn't want to give an heir to his brother who will inherit his brother's stuff. He wants to inherit his brother's stuff. And as long as there's no son, that's how that's gonna play out. So that's what Onan does. But God does not appreciate that. And so God kills him too. And so just like our culture today, Onan wants gratification without responsibility. And God kills him for not taking responsibility and for taking advantage of Tamar. And so at this point, we're kind of wondering, well, what about the line now? I mean, already there were three sons. Two of them are dead, right? There was Ur and there was Onan and there was Shelah. And we're kind of wondering about Shelah. And then all of a sudden, Ur, Ur is killed by God. And then Onan, who takes Tamar as his wife, Ur's wife, all of a sudden now he's killed by God. And so this is not looking so great all of a sudden, right? So what, what's going on with, this is the lineage. So what's gonna happen? Well, then it's Shelah. But Judah, he doesn't know why his sons are dropping dead. And so he's not in a hurry to give Shelah to Tamar. And Sheila's underage, so he's okay with that. So he basically tells Tamar, you go back to your, fa your father's house and don't call us, we'll call you when Sheila's ready, kind of a deal. But he has no intention of keeping this promise to her. It continues in verse 11, then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Sheila grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. And so he deceives, Judah deceives Tamar. And, but Tamar's not stupid. I mean, she figures this out. Verse 12 continues. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, this is Judah's wife, 
Now after, which it says right there. Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Abdulamite. So here we see Judah further following a godless culture in his actions. I mean, sheep shearing. You know, this is party time for the guys. A lot of hard work. But then when the work is over, they hit town, right? Kind of like the cattle drives or whatever. They hit town and kind of what happens there, sheep shearing time stays sheep shearing time and, and things happen. Boys will be boys kind of a deal. Verse 13. It was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, let me come into you for he didn't know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, therefore, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. She said, moreover, will you give me a pledge until you send it? And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal, your cord, and your staff that's in your hand. So seal, cord, and staff this, we understand what a staff is and a cord is what would be attached to the seal. Typically, we think our best guess is this is a cylinder that was worn typically around the neck or attached to the staff with a cord and it had a hole through it. And then that was the way like you could get wax and sort of, it was your ID that you could seal a scroll or something. They would know it was from you. So this in essence is his ID, his seal, the cord that it attaches, it may be in all one piece and his staff. And actually, this word's translated two different ways in this very text, because it can also mean like a signet ring. But anyway, so he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent a young goat by his friend, the Abdulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he couldn't find her. And he asked the men of her place, saying, Where's the temple prostitute who is by the road at Anaim? And they said, there's been no temple prostitute here. And so he returned to Judah and said, I didn't find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there's been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, ah, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughing stock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you didn't find her. So do you see, he's embarrassed. It's an embarrassing situation. He's sending payment to a prostitute, but his friend Hira can't find the prostitute. So then he starts asking around. It's an embarrassing situation. So finally Judah says, hey, forget it. I mean, I tried, forget it. Embarrassing. And here's the thing, if we distance from God, we will conform more and more to a godless culture. And that's exactly what's happening here. It continues in verse 40, 24. And now it's about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. 
Then Judah said, and this is key, bring her out and let her be burned. Why the harshness? I mean, it's the most severe punishment he could think of. Bring her out and let her be born, burned. So he pronounces not only death, but he pronounces death on her in the most cruelest way because she has had an affair and she's pledged to his youngest son, Sheila, and has had relations with somebody else. And if you think about Tamar's position, she's twice widowed now through no fault of her own. She's in a very vulnerable situation in a pagan culture just by that, two of her husbands has died. Nobody's lining up to be number three, right? Is kind of what's going on. And God always calls his people to protect the most vulnerable, but that's not happening here. Like his sons, Judah doesn't accept his responsibility to care for Tamar and to offer her Sheila, and he sends her off with a lie, and he doesn't plan to keep his promise, and she figures that out. I mean, he's in denial, and he's basically not knowing why they died. In his mind, he's blaming Tamar for the death of his sons, and he doesn't want to look at himself as maybe a failure as a father or anything like that. He needs her to be guilty in order to justify himself. He doesn't want to see his failure, and when he figures out that she's pregnant, he pronounces the harshest punishment that he can think of. Because we're all prone to be corrupted. And we do that when we separate ourselves from God's people. And then we start adopting the culture around us. And when we conform to a godless culture, we can't see our own sin. And that's exactly what's happening to Judah right here. But Tamar is going to help him with this, right? She confronts him with his sin. It continues in verse 25. And it was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, yeah, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And at that point, the people around who are watching this play out, you can hear a pin drop, right? Because maybe even other people are recognizing, wow, that looks like Judah's old staff. The one he used to carry a few months ago. What's going on? And Tamar uses the sexual double standards of the culture against Judah. How does Tamar know that Judah is gonna look for a prostitute at sheep shearing time? Apparently, this is a practice of Judah because he's in the culture. He's not seeing his own sin. So he bought into the cultural double standard. Men do whatever they want. Women must be sexually pure. But God calls all of us all of his people, men and women, to sexual purity. Wherever you're at on life, God calls us from this day forward to sexual purity. That's what God wants for us. But even when we're corrupted, 
and we're at our worst, the other thing that we can learn from this is that God, even in his holiness, offers mercy to the repentant. The next verse is 26. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. Inasmuch as I didn't give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not have relations with her again. So what's happening here is Judah accepts the responsibility. He cares and takes care of Tamar from that day forward, but he doesn't go in to sleep with her again because he sees that as incest. And so he is repentant. His heart has changed. He reacts to this confrontation with a repentant heart. And you look at Judah's life, and up to this point, you know, what do we know about him? Well, he hated his brother. He conspired to kill him. He came up with selling him to get some money from the deal. He broke his promise to his daughter-in-law. He follows the culture in kind of doing sexually, acting out any way he wants, and then he hypocritically condemns his daughter-in-law to death. And if we're sitting here thinking, yeah, he deserved to be exposed, you're right, he did. And so do we. We deserve to be exposed for our sin that no one knows about. As a descendant of Judah once said, why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? So Judah's faced with a choice. He either spends the rest of his life living a lie to justify himself, or when confronted with his sin, he admits it and he repents, he tries to make it right. And he finally does the right thing. It's never too late to come back to God. It's never too late to repent and get your life right. And what happens? God's gracious to Judah. I mean, it's after all this that we, that we find out in the course of the story that Judah is the line of the Messiah. Tamar the rest of the story, Tamar gives birth to twins. And while the midwife is, is doing that, one twin sticks his hand out of her womb. And the midwife knows there's twins in there, and she knows it's important to know which child is born first, so she ties a string onto the wrist of that baby. But all of a sudden, that hand goes back into the womb, and the other brother pops out. Bizarre. And the brother, the first one born completely out of the womb, his name is Perez. The other one is Zerah. And amazingly, in God's grace, all of them are named in the lineage of Christ that sometimes we read at Christmas time in Matthew chapter 1. You see, we see this big change in Judah's life, and that change is going to show up later. And the story of Joseph will get there. But the problem is, what God keeps on teaching us is that we are all prone, as God's people, 
we are prone to corruption. And the lesson that we learn is, is to acknowledge that and know that when we separate ourselves from God's people, when we stop coming and, and being with God's people, then we get more immersed in a godless culture. And the more we do that, the more we are incapable of seeing our sin because it's God's people and God's book that helps us to see and understand what God's holy righteous standard is and how we miss that. And so without that, in a corrupt culture, we live in denial and we justify everything we do and we sort of blame it on others or our situation or it's okay for me or well, if I wasn't because of this, I wouldn't do this. And none of that works when we face a righteous and holy God. And so God has a way of protecting us from that. First of all, through this line of Abraham, he sent a Messiah, Jesus Christ, to come and pay for our sins. And then he offers to us, through Christ, forgiveness. If we will admit our sin, repent, and turn to him. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you even for this story within a story or a historical record within a historical record that explains what's playing out as you work out your plan to redeem a world that's prone to stray and rebel against you. And so, God, we thank you for this record because it teaches us to not forsake your people and to not become immersed in a godless culture where we become blind to our own sin. God, help us. Help us to see. Help us to see in Christ's name. Amen.